Have you ever had a civil discussion with someone you disagreed with or who had a different perspective than you? If you have, what did you learn? Here on The Moderate Review, we try to have these kinds of discussions. So, let's talk. I'm your host, Jack Taggart, and on this episode, I continue my discussion with Father Vince, and we talk about how one can get possessed and some misconceptions that Father Vince faces as an exorcist. We also talk about how to prevent from being possessed in the first place. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, I strongly encourage you to do so. So, let's talk. What other, and what are the, I guess, the typical things you've noticed that uh, invites the demonic? Yeah, I, I would say the entertainment industry which creates a fascination with the devil. You know, people can create an entry point either directly or indirectly. Directly when they know they're doing something that goes against how God would call us to live. Indirectly, if they think that something is fun and entertaining, such as playing with a Ouija board, for example. Just because we think it's fun and entertaining doesn't mean that it isn't an avenue in which the devil can use to try to break into our lives. And there's a great fascination, I think, today with the devil, the demonic, with magic and ghost hunting, paranormal activity. These are all very, very popular today. And the danger is that the devil can be using the entertainment industry as a way to try to, to lure people deeper into his realm. Another entry point would be a curse. Curse is the opposite of a blessing. If something or someone is blessed, it's commended to God. If it's cursed, it's commended to the devil or some evil spirit. I believe curses are only effective if one is weak in their faith. You know, somebody may want to put a curse on us. We can't stop them from what they want to do, but we can make sure, as you know, the Bible tells us, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, about putting on the whole armor of Christ. Think of Psalm 91. I need not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. So if we are living out our faith, then we are safeguarded and protected from somebody who may want to curse, put a curse on us. Another uh, entry point would be being dedicated to a demon, somebody that's actually cultivating relationships with evil spirits and dedicating their lives to them. I had a young man one time that told me that he experienced such great power in his life after he declared Satan to be his father. So he had dedicated his life to Satan. Another entry point would be abuse. You know, there's a lot of abuse in the world today. And sometimes when people's lives are fractured and broken, they may choose help from their own sources, meaning they may go see like a psychic or a median who may claim to help them put the pieces of their life back together. But ultimately, it only leaves people fractured even more. So those are some of the primary ways that I've seen in the last 16 years in people that I've worked with that have opened up a doorway to the demonic in their lives. I may have already mentioned this already, but like, are there, I guess, ways to prevent these, these entry points from being, from being open? Absolutely. I mean, one should try to avoid you know, the things that I mentioned that are entry points. But ultimately, one doesn't have to do anything extraordinary to keep the devil at bay. It's the very ordinary aspects of our Christian faith. You know, people will always ask the question, is it possible for a Christian to be possessed, for example? And the 
ultimately the answer would be that's not possible. But it would be possible if somebody claims to be Christian, but they're really not living out that faith. Maybe they're just wearing the label of being a Christian, but there really isn't any true relationship with Christ in their life. And there is that danger today about apostatizing, meaning somebody grew up in a Christian home, but then they abandoned and rejected their faith. People have asked me oftentimes, why do exorcism prayers have to be repeated more than once? Jesus gave the command and the demons were cast out. And my response is that in the apostate world, meaning where people were raised Christian and then rejected the faith, those people that deal, are dealing with extraordinary demonic activity, the devil seems to have a greater claim on them because they knew the truth and then walked away from it. So, you know, they can't mm. claim ignorance, for example. So in those cases, by rejecting the truth, the gospel, you know, the word of God, demons seem to have a deeper hold on them. And for that reason, prayers may have to be repeated more than once. I was going to ask you about that, too, because um, as I was prepping for this interview, I have noticed that there are other exorcists have been saying, I've said in the past, that priest says the prayer and then they have to come back multiple times. In your experience, how often do you have to say their prayers or have to keep on coming back for the, those demons to leave? Not too often. I mean, the first time when I came back from Rome in 2006, I worked with somebody over the course of a year that we would only meet maybe once every four to five weeks. And it's really determining the the level of demonic possession. In this case, there were seven demons. And what I've discovered, the reason why the prayers had to be repeated is that the person was not forthright in telling me everything about their situation, which, is, again, it goes back to the importance of not rushing into doing an exorcism. So I'm very deliberate today, and my experience is in being very deliberate in knowing the person's situation. You know, I'm not there to judge the person about what they did about inviting the demon in. I'm not there to judge that. But I can only help people when they're forthright and they tell me exactly what they did that brought about the demonic activity. And when I have all that clear information, then it's been my experience and my practice that the prayers do not have to be repeated multiple times. And the part of that is the person also has to make the commitment about going to church and, and praying. And, you know, I can see people periodically, but people also need to belong to, you know, they need to belong to a home church where the pastor of their church can give them ongoing pastoral care. I kind of put, use the analogy, you know, when you're sick, you go see your family doctor who then may refer you to a specialist, but only for a set period of time. But then you're back under the care of your own family doctor. And people need to be back under the care of their own pastor of their church so that their pastor can give them that ongoing pastoral care. There is that danger, though, where people, when they find themselves in crisis and dealing with the demonic, you know, they're going to do exactly what you want them to do to defeat the devil. But once the demon has been cast out, Maybe they lapse back into kind of being indifferent about spiritual matters. It makes me think of the passage in Luke's Gospel in chapter 11 where it says, Once the demon has been cast out, it goes and wanders through the arid wasteland, and then coming back and finding the house swept clean, meaning it's gone, but God hasn't been invited in. Then it goes and finds seven other demons worse than itself, 
and they come and take up residence in the person. So again, it's not just a matter of casting the demon out. You know, the bigger part is inviting God in because wherever the Holy Spirit is present, an unclean spirit cannot remain. And so I know you kind of hit on it already, but like, have there been like certain instances that you've experienced where you knew for a fact you cast out the demon and then maybe like a, a few weeks later, or even a year later, you're back at this person's place casting out another different demon? I've had that experience. And, and now I guess this, again, it comes with um, experience. If I don't believe that somebody is truly sincere, then I will not do an exorcism for them. Because I know as horrific as things may be now, it can become seven times worse. So, you know, you kind of learn things over the years. So I have to believe that the person is truly sincere. And then if they are, then I'm happy to work with them. I even like to work hand in hand with the pastor of their church so that their pastor is aware of what they're going through and then can make sure that they're fulfilling their religious obligations so that the entry point remains closed. In your opinion, what you've observed, has is there some overlap between the demonic and I guess more of the paranormal or are they two separate things? I think there's a lot of overlapping because I think like ghost hunters, what they're encountering for the most part are evil spirits. Because, you know, we would say that spirits don't have an address like you and I do. You know, they don't live in a certain location. They may manifest in a, in a particular location from the very fact of what people are doing. It's the activities of the ghost hunters that may be causing them to manifest. And it's also true that maybe some horrific crime or evil t was done in a particular location, and then that attracts the attention of evil spirits. But I would, I would say that 99% of the time, what ghost hunters are encountering are evil spirits. Of these spirits, are they kind of more of like where at one time had a physical body or were there, I guess, these spirits who've never had a physical body before? Or is it both? I would say that, uh, you know, for an evil spirit, we would say that those are the fallen angels that never had a physical body. You know, when God created the angelic world, this is what the church says, you know, gave them infused knowledge so they didn't have to learn anything, which is why... A demon can speak a language that it you know, didn't have to go in school to learn, but again, gave them infused knowledge and then basically said, with the knowledge I've given you, God said, will you now then unite your will with mine? And then the belief is that Lucifer and one third of the angels said no, and then they fell from grace. The book of Revelation talks about how you know, the, the serpent's tail swept one third of the stars out of the sky which is a reference to the angelic beings. And then they were cast down to the earth and became imperfect creatures. So they certainly never had a physical body. You know, the question always arises, is it possible for the soul of one who has died to be present in a location? And I would say that that could happen, but God has to permit that to happen for whatever reason God may have. Because once we die, we cannot choose to act in this reality anymore you know we we don't act independently of god once we die so god has to be permitting it to happen you know and i've had some examples where somebody believed that a spirit was coming to them at night and it may have been you know a spouse that had died or a child had died and 
perhaps God permitted the soul to return just to bring some sense of peace or consolation in the life of the person who is mourning. Now that uh, you've, uh, you've done your, yes, your due diligence on making sure you know, this person is legitimately um, possessed, um, what is it that you bring to the exorcism? And I guess to an extent, what is the significance behind those objects? So once I determine that somebody is truly demonically possessed, then I will determine where the exorcism will take place. So it's always in a sacred space, in a church or in a chapel, where a person's you know privacy can be respected. The church doesn't allow exorcisms to be recorded and whatnot just to respect the confidentiality of the person who is possessed. I prepare myself as a priest. I celebrate Mass. I will spend time in prayer. I will go to confession. I will determine who else will be present. There's no such thing as exorcism tourism, meaning no one's there just out of a sense of curiosity. I'm there. The one who's afflicted is there. I require them to bring a family member or a friend, and then I will have others in the room that are there simply to pray. And then the uh, the rite itself, so there's a, a, a book that has the rite of exorcism in it. And the elements of the rite of exorcism basically are the key ingredients of the Christian faith. And we can say what the church is doing is taking the key ingredients of the Christian faith, which the devil and his demons have rejected, and literally throwing them into their faces to defeat them. So the rite will begin by blessing the person with holy water, which reminds us of our baptism into Christ, by which we have become a new creation. There is the litany of the saints calling upon the saints to be present during this public prayer of the church. I will read the Psalms, one or more of the Psalms out of the Old Testament. I will then read passages from the Gospels, where Jesus is casting out demons. The prologue of John's Gospel, where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And all of these things are meant to cause the demons to manifest, because once they manifest, the fight against them will begin. And then once the demons are manifesting, and I've done these parts that I've mentioned, I will uh, breathe on the face of the person invoking the Holy Spirit. It, re it reminds us when Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So I invoke the Holy Spirit in breathing on the face of the person. And then I will say a prayer directed to God, who is asked to bring relief into the life of the person who is suffering. And then I do an imperative exorcism, which is a command to the demon itself, commanding it to depart in the name of Jesus Christ and the authority that he has given to his church. And as I do the rite, I, I pray through it completely. And as I'm praying through it completely, I'm watching and observing the different reactions that the different prayers and components of the rite may have on the demon. And the ones that seem to have a very strong reaction, then I can come back and repeat those until the demon is cast out. And then once the demon is cast out, there's a prayer of thanksgiving that is offered. So during the prayer, you've mentioned how there was, I guess, these demons, they react to certain elements of the, of the prayer of the right. And so in your experience, what have you seen has been the most typical occurrence of um, these demons reacting? The number one thing that they react negatively to is the word of God. So the reading of scripture, the gospel accounts, because demons are defeated by the word of God. That's why the prologue of John's gospel is so powerful. The word became flesh. So 
the devil is defeated by the word of God. I mean, even when Jesus was tempted, you know, Jesus is baptized and then he's driven out into the desert by the spirit. And then after 40 days of fasting, the devil appears and then the devil tries to trip Jesus up, but he responds with the word of God. So it's always the word of God that defeats the demons. And that's where I've seen the strongest negative reactions from demons in doing the right. I guess maybe this might probably get a little more, I guess, more theological a bit, but um, how are these rites actually, I guess, crafted, if that makes sense? They're actually put out by uh, the congregation in Rome. So they're, it's, it's one of the uh, offices at the Vatican that oversees all the liturgical rites. So they've compiled elements that, have, that were in place before everything became, you know, ritualized, if you will. So these are things that have been kind of pieced together over the last 2,000 years of the church. And the church has pulled together things, again, that seem to be, again, what Jesus himself did. You know, you speak with command, you speak with authority, the word of God. Again, think of holy water again. You know, one should not believe that what the church is using, that they're not magical. They always have to point to something greater. And, you know, blessing somebody with holy water, you know, the focus isn't on the holy water. It's on the baptism. It's on becoming, you know, putting on Christ. So, again, they has to point to something greater. And, again, that goes back to what I mentioned earlier, where sometimes people today are viewing the priest as a magician, and they think that I have my bag of tricks and I can make the devil go away. But they have to point to something greater. Otherwise, we kind of miss the point. Oh, it's my faith tradition now. There's yeah, something similar. The I guess these rituals that we do do they uh, there's really no power in them, but more of what they represent. Absolutely. Because I had a a young man tell me one time that he goes, my girlfriend is possessed, and I tried to get rid of the demon, but it didn't work. And I said, well, what were you supposed to do? He said, I've been burning sage in the house because I'm I was told that sage is something demons don't like. And I I said to him, do you hear what you're saying? You're putting your faith in sage, and your faith needs to be in Christ. And because it's misplaced, that's why things aren't getting any better. I guess, are there certain things that um, the demonic is very adverse to, like certain objects? I mean, not just like the the holy, but in this case, it's like sage or, or yeah. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I would say that, you know, it's really things that are of a spiritual nature that they reject. Because they, the demons know that they they point to something greater. Again, like sage and all of that, I the church doesn't really have anything to say about sage. I think that's more of a practice that comes from outside of the church. Because again, the church would just want to focus on the importance again of the word of God. Think of baptism. Those are the key ingredients that the church is focusing on you know, the power of the Holy Spirit, again, that breathing on part of the ritual itself, and then the command to the demon, because Jesus spoke with authority. So the church, when she does an exorcism, is speaking with authority in the name of Jesus Christ. So I think a lot of times people, based on their own research or things perhaps they see out on the internet, they start thinking that those are parts of the ritual in the right where that's certainly not true. One of my final questions before we wrap up is, can 
objects be possessed? I think so. That goes back to demonic infestation. And the question would be, is the object inherently evil? Was it created solely for the purpose of bringing about evil? So think of a voodoo doll, for example. So mm, things like that. Is it inherently evil? Was it an object that was created as a way to create an attachment with somebody, and then that attachment would bring about the entry point for the demonic into the person's life? And it is possible that maybe some object gets cursed, you know, something that we might use. I had somebody tell me one time that somebody told them that their grandmother's dishes were cursed, so they needed to destroy them. And I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why would you destroy dishes? They're not inherently evil. You know, you could say a prayer over them if you thought that was the case, and you put them back into their right usage, but you certainly wouldn't just destroy them. We we don't destroy people, you know, if they've been cursed or whatever. You know, we pray. But for me, the main question would be, is the object inherently evil? A voodoo doll. I would say that a Ouija board is inherently evil. Books that, that are about casting spells and magic, because I believe that all magic is inherently evil. And I don't mean an illusionist who's, you know, pulling a rabbit out of their hat or whatever, but magic where somebody is trying to do harm to someone else with the help of an evil spirit and using certain incantations or, or whatnot in order to bring about that desired effect. What are some uh, misconceptions that you've encountered about uh, exorcisms? I know you kind of, you've mentioned a few already. I think, you know, when most people think exorcism, they think of the movie The Exorcist and, you know, there's a person levitating and their head spinning and pea soup flying. When in reality, an exorcism is really praying with somebody and praying for someone who's dealing with the demonic. So I don't think I can stress it enough that it's really about praying with people and for people. So the focus should be on prayer and bringing people into a relationship with Christ, whether for the first time or bringing them back to that relationship if they've kind of fallen away. So if anybody wanted to learn more about exorcisms, exorcists, or even how to contact their local exorcist, what resources or places would you recommend my listeners go to? I think the number one place that people should turn to would be uh, if they belong to a church, go talk to your pastor, first of all. If you don't belong to a church, then you know the one that's closest in your area, you know, reach out to the, the pastor there, you know, the priest in the area, say, this is what I'm dealing with. Because the worst thing you can do is just go knock on a door and say, I'm possessed, I need an exorcism. Probably most people are going to think you're crazy and close the door on your face. But if you can have somebody the pastor of your church who knows your story and knows you kind of open that door for you or make the connection, people are going to get a lot better response. And I will say that I've noticed the majority of the people that contact me, they're not asking me, can you help me sort out what's going on in my life? They've already diagnosed themselves as being possessed and needing an exorcism. But again, people need to realize that I need to make that determination. You know, nobody calls a neurologist and says, I'm having a headache, so I need to have brain surgery. When can we mm. schedule it? You want them to do their own due diligence and their own investigation and determine what's going on. 
and then prescribe the right course of action and treatment. So again, I think the best thing to do is, you know, reach out to one's local pastor, the one in your area, and say, help me figure out what I'm dealing with, and then allow that person then to refer you to someone who can do the prayers of deliverance, the prayers of exorcism. Final question. Do you have any uh, final thoughts or or something you'd like to say before we close? I think it's just important for people to uh, just to educate themselves. And I would say again that we don't have to do anything extraordinary to defeat the devil. Again, it, it is the ordinary aspects of our faith that will keep the devil at bay. Again, go to church, pray, read the Bible. You know, if somebody comes to me and, you know, and they say, Father, I'm dealing with the devil, and I say, good, go to church, pray, and read the Bible. And they look at me like, no, what do you really want me to do? People are always willing to do the extraordinary, but I can't emphasize enough that it's the ordinary aspects of our faith that will keep the devil at bay. You know, I jokingly have told some of my priest friends where somebody comes to me and I tell them to, to go to church and pray and read the Bible, and they're like, really? And But if I were to tell them something extraordinary like, go out at the night of the next full moon and howl at the moon and hop on one leg and swing a dead cat around your head, they would go, where do I get the cat? So people yeah. are always willing to do the extraordinary. But again, it is the ordinary aspects of our faith. I think the danger for a lot of people today is maybe they become bored with the ordinary aspects of our faith. And maybe that's where people begin dabbling out there in the world of the occult or whatever and kind of open up that entry point to the devil. But again, if one is truly living out their faith, the devil is nothing to fear. This concludes this episode of The Moderate Review. Throughout this interview, I was surprised at how much I agreed with Father Vince on how the demonic possesses an individual and how to avoid being possessed again. I am reminded of a scripture in my faith tradition that says, Now ye may suppose that this is foolish in me, but I say unto you that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass, and small means, in many instances, doth confound the wise. Close quote. It is the small things that make a difference. The actions that we do daily turns into habits. Habits help form a personality, and our personality forms us into who we become. Until next time, I'm your host, Jack Taggart. The views expressed in the moderate review are solely of the individuals participating and not necessarily of the organizations they are affiliated with. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please tell your friends and please follow us on Twitter at tmodrev, that is the letter T, mod, rev, one word. Until next time, I'm your host, Jack Taggart.